everyone. Welcome to Semester 2, Episode 7 of Just Admit It, where former deans and directors of mission give insight into the complex higher ed landscape. I'm Christine, an Ivy Wise counselor and former assistant director of admissions at Yale and Georgetown. And joining me today are my friends and fellow Ivy Wise colleagues, Kara, who is a former assistant dean of admissions at Colgate, and Nat, who is a former senior assistant director of admissions at NYU and NYU Abu Dhabi. Now that many universities have notified their applicants of their admissions decisions, we're going to discuss how the 2020 and 21 college admission cycles went overall. I'll turn it over to Karen and Nat, because I know you two have been in the thick of it for the last few weeks. So Karen or Nat, one of you, do you want to kick us off with some big insights that you've <laughs> noticed this very important, very different year? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I will just state that there's no way that we can talk about everything, right? It was such a crazy year, memorable for all the wrong reasons or, you know, depending on who you ask. Um, you know, we'll we'll try to touch upon some of the most important facets of what made this year memorable. Um, but, and, and, you know, and I'll just start it by saying that, you know, the, the increase in white hairs on my head was, <laughs> was, you know, consistent with the increase in applications across highly selective institutions. So Kara, I mean, take it away. Like Kogay? What's that? Say that again. <laughs> like 103% like Kogay University. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. more than, more than Colgate, more than I, my, the white hair, um, yeah, influx <laughs> was much more than Colgate's application influx. And Colgate's a really great example, right? They're a pretty extreme example. Um, to, to my knowledge, that's the, the largest increase of any one single school that I've heard, although I don't know if you guys have contradict that at all. Um, but Colgate's is a particularly interesting one to um to look at this year. They are one of kind of a few schools in their sort of immediate group of cross applicants that went test optional for the very first time this year. And it's been interesting to think about schools that went test optional for the very first time versus schools who have always been test optional. And I've seen sort of these bigger increases among schools that went test optional for the very first time this year. So that was an interesting observation. And the other piece that I think is a big part of Colgate's increase is their, their hidden supplement this year. Um, which means that when students were actually submitting their application, it looked like there was no supplemental essay and students said, oh, great, I'll just submit an application to Colgate. And then afterwards they saw in their portal that there was a, a question that asked, um, I can't recall off the top of my head, I think it was just a why Colgate. Um, and so I think that drew in a lot more applicants than might have applied had they seen an essay sitting there in their way. Now, that's so awesome that you brought that up because one of the things that Colgate uh, had the opportunity to do, and we don't know whether or not they did it, um, is that they could, you know, when you were pointing out, Kara, that they had this kind of hidden supplement that was that only appeared in their portal, yeah. they could have decided to only count the kids that did the supplement um, as an applicant. But if I'm going to venture a guess. Yeah, that well, it might, well, here's the thing. If they go up 103% this year, right. that short-term success, right? Because how do you sustain that 
for next year and have long-term success. So, you know, if I had to guess, I think they probably throttled their increase down a little bit. Interesting. Knowing Gary Ross and how smart he is. And we, I actually, I know I'm looking at both of you. You both worked at Colgate. You know, I'm one of Colgate's biggest fans. Uh, (laughs) As am I. Yeah, I love Colgate. So I, I hope that they throttled it down a little bit because how do you bounce back? next year and it's not just Colgate I mean we we it's it's like an NYU when you have a hundred thousand applications for a private research university what happens if you if you have to resort back to requiring a test requiring the SAT or ACT or some sort of standardized test you'll have such a drop in applications that it's, it's going to hurt the business side. It's going to hurt your standing as a university. It's going to hurt your bond rating. So we can, we can kind of marvel at all of these huge influxes in application numbers, but I don't know if everyone on the college side is really that excited about it. Yeah, So absolutely. And a good indicator is that um, the Common App reported that even though uh, the number of new Common App users went up by 2%, right. the number of Common Application, or sorry, I'm sorry, the number of applications submitted through the Common App went up by 11%. So it's um, kids applying to more schools rather than more students applying. Yeah. So that's always a worrisome trend, right? Um, that we've all counseled students and we typically would say 10 to 12 schools on your balanced list, well-researched, good fit, you know, reach target likely. Some students are applying to 20 schools, yeah. 25 schools. Yeah. I definitely had more students who really at the last minute said, I'm nervous. I'm going to do that. Even even with these very balanced, very well thought out mm-hmm. lists, just hit this kind of panic moment at the end, even as I, you know, even sort of with us saying, hey, it's, it's going to be OK. And of course, now a lot of those students have so many choices that it's it's made April a lot harder for them to sort of navigate through those. And I think that I wonder with um, I know, Carrot, you were very close to work with students um, from the school side as well, that the early admission cycles we saw, um, there were a lot more deferrals, perhaps anecdotally, we felt that, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if we have very clear numbers um, specifically on that, but we just felt like students were deferred more and possibly rejected more. So if I were a student in December, I would feel like, oh my gosh, I was kind of counting on it or I was hopeful, but now all of a sudden I'm rejected, I'm deferred. And I'm hearing that across the board from my classmates. So I'm going to throw 10 more you know, schools yeah. on my list in January, you know, before the final deadline. Um, I felt like there was a little bit of that this year going on as For well. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, when we've all talked kind of offline informally mm-hmm. about how this year was going, um, you know, and I think of the meme, like how it started and then how it's going. Right? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the visual that I have. Yeah. But, um, you know, we, we talk about kind of two main points and really one main point of, you know, the, the keyword test optional. Um, and then when you when you take that and then you add on the demographics of who was applying and more importantly, who was not applying, right? Those two factors um, 
led to what we saw. Those were probably the two factors that led to the, the two biggest factors that led to what we saw. The fact that schools went test optional, and we don't have to get into why they went test optional, but um, that led to that was the biggest probably you know primary factor to the increase in applications um, and kids that. You know, applicants that had no chance of getting in, of being competitive, felt like they still had it. You know, had a chance. Like now they're test optional, so mm-hmm. I, I have a chance. I can apply. And mm-hmm. now the upside of that, there were some kids and applicants, you know, probably that were admitted that would not have been would not have been able to be admitted in in years past. So that is that's a huge positive. But Carrie, you're bringing up a wonderful point, because one of the things that I think Christine and I talked about in a previous Mm -hmm. podcast was um, and if not, if it wasn't a podcast, it was just one of our kind of like, hey, how's it going (laughs) sessions? It was basically our fear of, um, you know, schools going test optional, which was not the same thing as being test blind. And so even though test optional was like, okay, we want to get more kids to apply, they still, there was still a financial impetus, right, for for their bond rating to have 75% of their incoming class have a test score. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, we saw there's huge variety across schools in terms of how they took this test optional policy and then what they actually did with it. Um, You know, and so we saw some schools say, um, all right, 50 percent of our applicants applied without test scores. We'll sort of try to follow that in our acceptance and, you know, accept 50 percent of our incoming class, um, 50 percent of of our accepted students will have no test scores and will have applied test optional. And then we saw other schools that were incredibly uneven, um, you know, and said uh, essentially, well, we're going to take 7% of our accepted (laughs) students with, without test scores. Um, And so really, really different ways the schools applied those policies. And I, for one, in working with my juniors right now, I'm already using those numbers in talking to my students about, how schools used this policy and what's going to be the best way for them to proceed moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, Kara, what, what have you said to most of them? I mean, of course, every single student is different, Absolutely. right? But like, what's, is there a default setting for a junior or a sophomore? Cause I, I certainly, you know, I think I know what you're going to say, but what, please share, share with our listeners what, yeah. what you have told your kids. Absolutely. And I mean, listen, I think right now, part of this conversation is that everything changes very quickly around here. And so for my juniors, up until this week, and still a little bit this week, I was saying, keep every door open, plan as though you are submitting test scores. And if you have access to them, if you have access to them, and you feel safe accessing them, then plan on taking them and trying to keep that door open. Yeah. Starting this week with some more accurate numbers and some more data to back it up and starting to have different conversations with particular students. So, for example, a student who just got back her March scores, um, you know, I'm able to sort of say, okay, listen, if these are the schools on your list and if these are the scores we're working with, let's talk about what it would look like to apply test optional. You know, so I'm really starting to sort of dig into the details more now with those 
with those numbers. Whereas before this week, it was sort of like, just keep all the doors open. Right. And now it gets to get a little bit more personal for each student. So no, it was, I think, and it's different, you know, obviously it's different for every student. No, you, you said it. Um, yeah. you know, I think the one, one thing that really resonated with me is like, if it's safe, right? Like you don't, you don't want to give advice and not take the safety of your students, of all your students into account. Like if you can safely, if you feel safe enough to go to a location mm -hmm. and test, right. Uh, then yeah, tr try to do so because, uh, whether in the semantics matter, because I think NACAC tried to make it so that, you know, schools would say you wouldn't be at a disadvantage if you didn't have a test score, like, which I guess apparently is not the same thing as having an advantage if you did have a test score, right? Because that's not the same statement, right? But that's essentially what it is. And, you know, Kara, and Christine, you were talking about there's like so much variety in terms yeah. of what colleges did with with their test with their test optional applicants but mm -hmm. i can tell you the one pattern that i was able to find in looking at all of this data mm -hmm. there's not one school that i have seen and i want to give kudos to you know uh, the ibys team that has done a great job of collecting mm -hmm. this and now carrie you've also been kind of keeping a spreadsheet but um, you know, we have incredible people behind the scenes. You don't get to hear their voices, but they are working so hard for us and for you and as listeners. But uh, I don't see any school yep. that has accepted a larger percentage of test optional kids mm -hmm. than what they were given in, in their applicant pool. Absolutely. Right. There's no school that received 50 percent test optional applicants and then their accepted pool you know, has 60% or even 51%. Yeah. It's always a smaller number. Carrie, you were very generous in saying like, there was a school that, you know, there, you know, there's a little bit of a pattern of accepting <laughs> what you received in the pool. That's, mm -hmm. that seems to me more like an outlier. Um, I, I don't disagree with you. You're yeah. right. But, you know, <laughs> we can give credit where credit's due. You know, Absolutely. Boston University, students who applied test optional, 71% uh, oh, excuse me, 75% of their applicants applied test optional. Yes, yeah. 75%. ED, right? Yep, yeah. AED. Thank you. Um, and 71% of those accepted That's awesome. were had applied test optional. Mm -hmm. So they fell pretty darn close yeah. to where that split was. Um, mm -hmm. And there were a couple other schools that really came um, very close to that. I want to say Tufts. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, again, in early decision, 57% applied test optional, 56% of those accepted were test optional. So we saw some schools really sort of honoring what they were given and really saying, we are going to work with what students were able to, to give to mm -hmm. us. And I wonder if part of that, if it's driven, I mean, I'm probably not off 50 some percent, but a large portion probably were also international students. I, you know, all of us have worked with international students who were very challenged yeah. in finding locations. They were canceled um, just as broadly, if not more broadly yeah, than absolutely. the U.S. And so um, it was already challenging, I think, for international students to study for and take these exams. And all of a sudden, um, and I think that kind of, I mean, my very anecdotal cases i mm -hmm. think it helped some international students yeah. i think you know um that's always been challenging again so it was kind of a nice year where they can just apply it without test scores um but that may not be the case for all students um 
I think of it like I, I think in one conversation I had with a student, I said it's kind of like AP exams, you know, where it's optional. But if you are taking that AP class, it's kind of expected that you would. And if you didn't, they kind of assume that maybe the scores weren't what you want them to be. Right. So when you have test optional for SAT or ACT and you, if you have access potentially, um, you could have, you know, maybe it was administered at your school um, and maybe because your classmates were submitting, you know, and you didn't, the assumption is maybe didn't go as well, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. it was, I think it's tricky, right? Yeah. Test option is not a very clear cut, whereas the University of California system, um, they were test blind and that's just like, okay, no test scores, period. And that's very clear cut for students. Um, and how do you think about that? Yeah, and I like... I like the data points that you previously talked about as well, Kara, and, and I totally agree with you, Christine. But looking at you know BU, um, there's a lot of nuance in that because there's Absolutely. there's many layers because they they're in Boston. They're they're kind of they overlap tremendously with a school like Northeastern, which for international students have always been test optional, mm-hmm. right? And so then it would make sense that BU would then attract international students, you know, that were like, wow, I can apply to BU now. And I had students that applied to BU without a test score um, and with a test score that were international. And so, um, and Tufts saw that same thing. I think they were up 30% in international applicants right early, but then, you know, then you worry about the places that just didn't attract a lot of test optional Applicants, you know, like, mm-hmm. I think pens, I think, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm, I'm just doing it by memory, but I think they're overall, it was like 28 or 29% of their applicant mm-hmm. pool was test mm-hmm. optional, and they only yeah. accepted 24%, mm-hmm. right? So they, they tried to mirror what they got, but, but they didn't get a lot. It makes yeah. sense to me that they would only get 29 or 28% of their applicant pool to be test optional. I also think, I mean, in working with my students who applied to Penn this past year, I think that's very much much a perception thing of, well, it's Penn. I better, I better right. submit my scores. And so I definitely right. had students who were sort of on the edge of, should I submit? Should I not submit? Right. And mm-hmm. and decided to submit. Decided that the benefit of submitting a score would be, mm-hmm. you know, higher than the potential of not having a score. And, you know, Georgetown's another one. They were very clear in their test optional policy that they wanted test scores, that if you had taken them, in fact, if you applied and you applied test optional, you received a follow-up email from Georgetown saying, but did you take them? Because if you took Mm -hmm. them, we need you to report them. And so you see that reflected in their statistics that it's, mm-hmm. you know, in early action, 7% of their applicants apply test optional. Yeah. And so they, you know, but but they were very clear mm-hmm. in saying that, and then they got that. Um, so it's, you know, we certainly saw some of that mirror what the colleges were pretty explicitly expressing in their test optional policies. Yeah. And again, just so that we don't get too far away from, you know, why we're talking so much about this is because Mm -hmm. essentially 
you know, in U.S. News and World Reports, part of their methodology states that you have to have at least 75% of your entrance, of your enrolled class, you know, um, the school has to report at least 75% of those mm-hmm. test scores or else you receive a 15% deduction in the distribution of your middle 50%. So, and then there's some other kind of small language around that. So now I think we all can agree that we weren't expecting any school to get 75% of their applicant pool or 75% of their enrolled class to have a test score. I I kind of guessed that maybe we would we would fall around 50%. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we're going to fall around 50% because like I, I'm looking at like Wellesley, you know, they I think 60% of their applicant pool applied test mm-hmm. optional. And then I think 50% of their in of their not enrolled class, but their accepted, accepted. class. Yeah. What's really important to look at is who's going to enroll out of those kids, mm-hmm. right? And will there be waitlist activity, which we'll probably we'll want to talk about? Probably our listeners will want to hear about. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't. We don't really have a good. We won't have a good answer yet. So yeah. 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 One thing I do want to point out, I think there's a lot of um, there's a little bit more coverage. I think on um, the very sensational the increase in the number of applications. Yeah. Look at MIT um, and how that's driving down the admit rate. The other side um, and it did get some coverage in the news, but um, maybe less so, is that not everyone um, did very well. Um, SUNY, the State University of New York, they actually saw a 20% decline in their application. Um, There was some data reported out by the Common App. Um, For instance, a category of public, small, less selective universities saw um, a decline overall of 2% in applications. Public, small, more selective university also saw a decline. In the number of application, the ones that did really well would be private, large, more selective universities went up by 20 percent. So it was a little bit of a, you know, kind of, you know, two trajectories. Um, It's obviously more exciting, you know, for New Cycle to talk about um, that 52 percent or 100 percent increase. um, But it's not across the board. So that's always something good to know because we hyper-focus um, in this field on maybe great five, Christine. But we have 3,000, 4,000, you know, colleges and universities in the U.S., depending on the category that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, that's important to keep in mind as well. You're right. And, you know, <laughs> I'm, I, I, I so applaud you, Christine, for pointing that out, is that the media always focuses on, like, selectivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's hard not to, just given how sensational those numbers right. were this year. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm applauding you just because I want to talk about the selectivity now. Um, <laughs> and because there, even those numbers are very misleading, right? Like when you see yeah, like 4% right. acceptance rate overall, or- What does that mean? Like, <laughs> but then we've talked about targeted deferrals, right? Yeah, right. So you think like it, it's even it's even crazier than 4% overall, right? If you include E. Mm-hmm. Basically what we're talking about is, you know, the model, the prevailing model, the ubiquitous model of enrolling the majority of your class, whether that's 51%, 55%, or 60 and of, 60 mm-hmm. and above percent of your class in mm-hmm. early decision so that you inflate your yield, which is important for bond rating. And then it, it gives you the opportunity to be Uber. I don't think even Uber is the right word now, like ludicrous selective, right? When you have like a, like, I think we talked about Vanderbilt the other day. And so I think, Kara, you were saying like, yeah, 20%, except, no, Christine, I think you said it, like 20% yeah. acceptance rate, right? And then their acceptance rate in regular is 
you know, single digits, but it's, it's actually, it gives you, it's, it's way more selective than what that advertised number is because there are kids that they can't take in ED that they defer knowing the intention of, yeah, yeah, with the intention of taking those kids in regular and you have a higher Mm -hmm. yield in those deferrals because, and the reason why they can't take those kids and and I'm going to do air quotes, you know, they can't take those kids in ED is because the optics, well, we can't take 62% of our class ED. Only 59. Right, right. So, So then a lot of the kids, um, you know, got deferred and, and those institutions knew that they're going to take those kids. Yeah. Right. So then regular, if you were just applying for the first time in regular, it was tough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and we saw places like Barnard with, a you know, about a 4% acceptance rate in regular decision who very clearly mm-hmm. said we intend to go to our wait list. We, we highly mm-hmm. anticipate going to our wait list. So, right. you know, again, this idea of, of going under knowing that they're going to go to their wait list, you know, intentionally having those low acceptance rates yeah. with the intention of using that wait list. And I think that's the trend. That's another big trend kind of um, when we, I, I think this is beyond just a pandemic. We've been seeing this for a number of years. Um, there's a great actually graphic that I've been sharing a lot with students and families from Northwestern <laughs> that shows um, in really since kind of the late aughts, 2008, 7, 8, 9, where this is what Nat's been talking about. They've shifted not just Northwestern, but a lot of ED schools, uh, early decision schools, <laughs> shifting um, you know, 40, 50, 50, 60% of their first your class through early mm-hmm. and so great yield i mean the same number of students like number of beds unless you have school like yale or rice they're actually increasing mm-hmm. the number of undergraduates or housing right. the number of you know um students you can admit or just matriculate it's about the mm-hmm. same but um i should say not the number of you admit the number of you admit go down because you are doing most of it early and so you can admit fewer in regular um so if anything you know if you want to get a clear sense of what's a true admit rate you can actually look at early decision um yes. at schools and if they don't have early decision maybe early action and then the second thing that we're seeing more really pronounced this year is carrot what you just said that going to the wait list um and really protecting their yield because one you don't want to um you know, take a student who may not come, you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, two, you don't want to um, over admit and then not have enough beds um, or under admit, you know, so mm-hmm. there are all these questions and it's better to kind of do it through the wait list. Yeah. So it's a win-win, I think, in a way for colleges, you know, it's um, safe for them to do that and waitlist students are more likely to come, the yield is right. stronger, yeah. right? So well, these trends. And imagine predicting yield in a year when you have mm-hmm. 102% increase in your applicant pool. Like it's, I think right. all the yield models that have ever been used are, 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 the so, are out, out the, the window door. this year. And so I yeah. get, you know, I, I get being in the position of a college and saying, Ooh, let's go under and then build up to our number with the wait list. You know, yeah. it's it's a scary year out there. And it's unpredictable. You can be waitlisted. I've seen yeah, students yeah. at a school that's like a target, you know, what we used to call target schools or even likely schools. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the reach schools, it's who knows who are you going to be waitlisted, right? Yeah, I, I precisely remember you know, my days at Skidmore College, where I really, I learned the craft, you know, certainly NYU is like highly visible, but, you know, Skidmore is where I learned, you know, 90% of what I, what I, what I talk about in, in college admissions. And, and I precisely remember 
comparing the data for accepted candidates say like, oh, this this time last year, we had this many deposits. This time last year, we had this many people visit us on campus. Yep, right? 365 exact day noon yes. comparison of where are we now compared yeah, to I know that Absolutely. Colgate did that, yep. right? I know that. I remember. Yeah. 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 And, and there's no, you can't do that. We haven't had visited, we haven't had visitors, right? It, it's just, it's going to be very, very difficult for colleges. But um, again, I'm, I'm also, again, inspired by kind of how creative schools have to be, right? In, in kind of figuring this out and, and thinking about this. Um, one of the things that I talked about before was, I mentioned it briefly and then I, I actually didn't end up going into talking about it, but it was kind of that one A factor or that secondary factor, which was the, the demographics of the, of the applicant pool. And we saw, we saw a shift, we saw a reduction in first generation students, right? And, and also like how eligible students in the applicant pool. So if those kids were in the early pool, you know, colleges, had to affirm them because they were they they recognize like we are down compared to last year in the in terms of that demographic which is very important to us for a variety of reasons but then that meant that they were going to have to defer you know students that were maybe recruited athletes um other kind of protected or hooked applicants and and that's what we saw and that's okay you that colleges should be affirming Mm -hmm. those students right Absolutely. You know, and Christine, when you were talking about common app stats of, you know, application numbers being up, and yet you looked at the FAFSA who reported seeing fewer submissions, right? So we know that students who are first-generation college-bound, students who are typically underrepresented in the college process, whether that's first-generation college-bound, low-income Pell-eligible kids, students of color, right? We saw a lot of those categories sort of be less represented, um, Mm in this class. And, and that actually sort of brings me to another um, kind of topic that was really interesting to see this year, which was historically black colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. Um, and they um, had a really interesting year. So to kind of put some context around this, you know, I feel like um, sometimes uh, our listeners may sort of say historically black college or university, what is that? So just to give a little bit of history, um, uh, historically, black colleges and universities have been around for an incredibly long time. The first one was founded in 1837, and its mission was to teach free African-American skills for gainful employment, which included reading, writing, um, basic math, some sometimes religion classes, um, sometimes basic industrial arts. And at the time, it was considered by some unnecessary, you know, educating African-Americans was considered by some unnecessary and criminal, and for others, it was considered essential and vital. Um, the vast majority of HBCUs were founded in the country between 1865 and Um, 1900. And the greatest number actually popping up in 1867, which is about two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. So at this point in the country, about 89% of HBCUs are in the South, but you'll also find some in Delaware, Illinois, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio. And there's a hugely diverse range of HBCUs, um, co-ed, single-sex, public, private, religious, unaffiliated, uh, tech-focused liberal arts. Um, And particularly this past year, HBCUs have been in the news a lot, right? Um, 
Um, there have been a lot of uh, students of color who have said, sort of said, you know, in light of the in some of the incidents of the past year have said, you know what, this feels like a really important type of school to me to take a look at. I want the kind of college experience that is going to affirm me as a human being. And so as opposed to looking at predominantly white institutions, we saw a lot of students of color really say, you know what, maybe I want to look at a historically mm-hmm. black college or university. Yeah. And so this past year, we saw these huge um these huge influxes of applications, as well as, as huge influxes of, of money and donations. And that yeah. put a lot of HBCUs in the news. Um, you know, I think the, the biggest news story was Mackenzie Scott, you know, probably um, mm-hmm. she's sort of the biggest name among donors. Right. And she obviously made incredibly generous gifts um, to a number of historically black colleges and universities, um, tribal colleges and other BIPOC majority serving institutions. Yeah. Um, but she was also joined by really notable alums from a lot of the historically black colleges and universities. Um, a Morgan State alum, Calvin Tyler, gave the second largest gift to a historically black college or university ever. Um, and so that was a really big um, uptick in sort of press giving um, sort of energy around HBCUs. And then again, um, you know, that that large increase in applications, which particularly at at Spelman College this past year um, was a 20 percent increase over last year. And so for um, young black women, that obviously increasingly felt like a really interesting and empowering option. Um, And that's been such an interesting story this past year. You know, most of the colleges and universities that we've talked about so far have been um, predominantly white institutions. And so it's really nice to take a step back and kind of look at um, institutions that don't necessarily fall into that category as we talk about BIPOC students in this process. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's some, um, I mean, such a great story there, you know, and it's important to highlight this because we can hyper-focus on a very tiny, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think it makes me think too of just how we are rethinking about higher ed, you yeah. know, what is the experience that students um, are seeking what's good for our society um, and all the disparities, inequalities that kind of came out, um, I mean, more so (laughs) than ever this year, it's always been there. Um, Some are more highlighted, um, but also causes to think like to, you know, what do we want out of these four years? What do we, how do we want to support our, you know, younger, younger generation students coming in and how should we train and educate them, right? Um, What are these essential qualities and experiences? What kind of um, citizens do we want to have leading our country in the next, you know, um, decades? So those are really good questions. I think we're definitely at that point. I'm in awe of both of you as colleagues because, yeah, you um, you're bringing up such great points. and, And I should I want to clarify, you know, my influx of gray hairs of white hair <laughs> whatever you call them they're new to me and i've never had them before uh, gray. my influx is not because i was nervous for my students i my my influx in non-dark black hair was like was much more about just the general state of yeah. college admissions like what are we doing like yeah. this is such a this has become such a business that it, you know it is like where, where you have so many schools that are literally 
accepting such a, a, a fraction mm-hmm. of like, is that, was that the goal in, at the beginning? And, you know, when, when we sat down, was it the goal to, to have a higher education system where you're just turning down more students, you know, 95% more students than you're actually taking, mm-hmm. because w- what is the, what is the value in that as, you know, as a, as a nation, as a country, as a, as a world. So, I mean, that's what I'm more worried about. And we have to really, and and I think right now, hopefully, right. That this sets the stage for a dramatic shift in, in, in how things are done and how applications are read. And yeah, I think we could really use that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm sort of thinking of this funny tweet that popped up a few days ago. It's a small group of colleges with terrible weather show complete ineptitude in being able to recruit appropriately sized applicant pools. <laughs> and it was, you know, it's a funny way of yeah. obviously touching on what is yeah. not a very funny topic, Nat, but like, is, is this, mm. is this how it should be? It's a yeah. really good like, what is the goal? Like, this yeah. is not, I don't think this is how we wanted it to be. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's going to, it's headlines, it's sensational, but yeah. um, what is it, what is it telling our young people, you know, when they're, yeah. when they're facing this, you know, it's easy for us to say, well, it builds grit, but mm-hmm. you know, I think, you know, one of the things that I worry about is kind of behind the scenes, right. In, and yeah. we, we've talked a lot about kind of the applicant numbers and stuff like that, but we haven't, you know, we haven't talked enough about kind of mental health during virtual learning. That's and, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, well. and, and I don't know if a reader this year, like we, we saw so many headlines about how many schools were up in applications. I didn't read one headline that said, we're up 35% in applications. We hired 35% more readers. Nope. Like no one, no one. Nobody. Yeah, so, and, and that meant our colleagues on the other side of the desk were working so hard, right. they yeah. didn't have time to think about what it was actually like for our students right now and all the students that are, whether they're learning actually in person, if they're lucky enough to be in person, or if they're virtual or they're hybrid or wh- whatever have you. But yeah. that is, it, it's taxing in so many ways. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, what I've seen is that the work is is just more laborious. Yeah. It's more busy work. Yeah. Right. And it's, it, it zaps creativity, but it, you know, and so it, it's actually in, in, in the inspiration of it, like I, I've seen kids find their creative ways to, you know, yeah. to kind of connect with one another. Yeah. Right. But I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Christine. I, I was just thinking that, uh, you know, we, we threw out so many statistics and, you know, this percent, that percent, but behind every statistic is an individual. Uh, so when yeah. you're talking about a hundred thousand applications, that's a hundred you know, 100,000 humans, human, human beings, beings with their own stories with dreams yeah. and hopes, you know, and we work with yeah. all of them, sometimes joyous when they get in, sometimes yeah. devastating when they don't. Yeah. Um, so I think we're um, bringing up, you know, an extraordinarily important point of mental yeah. health, especially in the pandemic. And we all know that's happening. We read about it. We work with students. Um, and on that note, too, that we will um, have an episode uh, with our podcast, upcoming um, episode about mental health more specifically. Um, but yeah, it's it's tremendous. You kind of, when you're reading so fast, right? Mm-hmm. And we've all been there, you know, you know, reading applications in, in committee, but it's, it's a student. It's someone, yeah. It, and that's really, really challenging too. So do we stop and pause and think about this? Do we have kind of a, you know, collective debrief 
in in June <laughs> when the dust settles a little bit and yeah. think like, is this something we want to sustain, encourage? Um, and do we want to bring it back to more same process um, of whatever that may be, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, who knows? You know, yeah. but, um, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, there's so many things. I, I just think if we're if we're competing against other countries or whether we are we're all one global community, you know, the goal has never been to say like, hey, we you know, our higher ed system, you know, denies more kids than yours does, right? Like Turns that turns down 94% of the people <laughs> who want to get a degree, which is an amazing yeah. thing. The other thing I kept thinking too through the process, it's become such a zero sum when you're just talking yeah, about, I was looking at um, our great, um, uh, one of our research assistants was pulling together numbers for the Ivy League and how they actually, a few of them actually went down in the number of MITs because of the deferrals coming in. I think mm-hmm. Princeton went down about 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get it, that's an enrollment issue, yeah. but it then becomes a zero um, some mentality. It's like, you, you know, you're in, that's my spot out, you know, and, you know, how do I get to that spot you know what people do i need to step over who are actually my classmates even if i don't know them they're my generation my cohort Mm -hmm. um you know fellow human beings in society with me fellow citizens so i I think yeah lots of macro questions that we probably can't all address today well i said we weren't going to be able to talk about it all yeah but we got to a good a good number of you know sort of debriefing a little bit on some of the stats trying to put that a little bit in perspective and also trying to keep the focus on some schools and some you know groups of students who aren't always at the front and center so I think I think this was a great first step in debriefing the admission cycle and so much more to come in upcoming episodes um, so thank you all for tuning in to just admit it catch up on all of our previous episodes by visiting the just admit it podcast page and be sure to bookmark our Ivy wise knowledge base to stay up to date with all the latest higher ed news and advice don't forget to follow us on Facebook Twitter Instagram and TikTok for additional college prep resources and stay tuned for our next episode in which we will talk about the importance of building executive functioning skills from an early age.